0: Hi, this is Word with Dr. David Clay. Did you know that according to a national survey of drug use and health problems, 19.7 million Americans, 12 years or older adults, in 2017 2017 had a substance use disorder? Did you also know that of those 19.7 million, included alcohol use problems. Additionally, within the first year of recovery from a drug use or substance use disorder, 85% relapse within the first year. Did you also know that the most addictive substances, at least the top three, include Heroin, cocaine, nicotine. And if you include the top 10, within that 10, at the number 10 position, is cannabis or marijuana. Also an interesting statistic would be that 30% of those individuals who begin using or misuse marijuana before the age of 18 are seven times more likely to suffer a marijuana use disorder as an adult. Now, again, none of these uh, statistics are entirely uh, funny, uh, even though I'm sort of laughing. What is hard, though, for me to understand or wrap my head around is just the sheer numbers that this includes. Certainly, most of us realize that there is a problem with illicit or illegal substance use. I say illicit, illegal. It's really not restricted to that, though. Uh, On these lists of the most addictive substances is often substances that we all use that are quite legal, one of which is caffeine. Uh, But people can become Addicted to caffeine, and they certainly can use it in a uh, misuse it in an unhealthy sort of way. Again, welcome to Word. My name is Dr. David Clay. Uh, I wanted to cover, if I could, or discuss today on the podcast uh, just exactly what it is to have a substance related disorder. Uh, The best place for me to go to in my profession as a clinical counselor is the desk reference to the diagnostic criteria from the American Psychiatrics Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, their fifth edition. Uh, this would be the so-called Bible of uh, behavioral health. Uh, all of the behavioral health professions, uh, including clinical counseling, psychology, social work, psychiatry. Uh, Substance-related and addictive disorders is a a new title to something that's been in all the previous uh, editions, the first four, but was called Dependence uh, as well as Abuse. Uh, So you would have a substance, and you would then, according to the short for all of this DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, you would then diagnose it as either dependence or abuse. And as logic, uh, common sense, uh, might be applied, most people begin because all of this, substance use, misuse, all of this begins with some sort of abuse of a particular substance, but is progressive. It moves along a continuum. Thus, hence, they decided to make it a little more than just simply abuse and dependence. They decided to place it, at they, the American Psychiatric Association, all those that participated in their field trials and studies, and that's basically how all this information is put together, how they come up with diagnoses, how they make the decision of what's included or not included, what is otherwise pathological or viewed as maladaptive and what isn't. They run field trials, which, are re- which is really just a basic tool of research where they solicit individuals who are actually in clinical practice who can record the data for them uh, and put all that together uh, into some sort of a summarized uh, report and with that then categorize it, dissect it. There is a board that uh, reviews those uh, disorders that appear to either ov- overlap one another Or could be uh, somewhat difficult to differentiate one from the other, and uh, maybe even some that are statistically not significant enough that they feel they need to be included or that there is a decision for them to be included in the DSM. There is a board that reviews all of that and makes the final uh, determinations. But when it's all said and done, they produce a report. Now, this report isn't annual, it may go for several years. But it is contemporary in the sense that it is frequently updated. There's always revisions. There's always additions uh, coming out, studies that come out as based on that data. Uh, But it's relevant. It's pertinent. It's significant. So we go to then the DSM. And rather than just seeing abuse and dependence, now we see substance-related and addictive disorders. And rather than even calling it misuse, The APA, American Psychiatric Association, has decided to call it, rather, use, which doesn't take anything away from the fact that, again, it's pathological or has some sort of maladaptive aspect to it. It just means that, basically, they're deciding use is the primary qualifier. If you use a substance, you are already at risk, potentially, of having misuse, And with that, then, not only a milder form, but, and these are subcriterion or these are additional subclassification, you determine if there is a use disorder of a particular substance, and then you also subclassify it as mild, moderate, and or severe. Uh, All three of those have uh, certainly uh, markers that go along with them. That would then tell not only uh, uh, the person treating, as would go into the treatment then, the formulation of a treatment plan, the treatment of the patient, but also would help us communicating. Uh, If you should see some other professional provider, whether they be medical or, again, in the counseling, uh, counseling psychology sort of field, psychotherapy field, we would all be able to understand this person has a mild version of it, which presumably then in terms of treatment would be uh, a more uh, positive prognosis versus moderate, which might be a little bit more uh, negative, I should say, possibly say, uh, less likely for full recovery versus severe, which might imply some degree of chronicity, uh, resistance to treatment, uh, um, I hate to use the word failure, but an increased risk of some failure or an inability to effectively treat the condition. Now, having said all that, I'm going to read to you from the DSM. The Substance-Related Disorders Against Substance-Related and Addictive Disorders Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association encompass 10 separate classes of drugs. There is alcohol, These are the different classifications, categories, caffeine, cannabis. These are in alphabetical order, by the way, if you can't tell or wouldn't tell, be able to tell. Hallucinogens with separate categories for certain types of hallucinogens. Inhalants, which just are things that you inhale, opioids, sedatives hypnotics which means those substances that not only sedate but could render one in an altered state of consciousness or awareness and anxiolytics or lytics which are anti-anxiety medications there are also stimulants which include amphetamine type cocaine and other stimulants there is tobacco And then there is uh, this category for, I guess, uh, new drugs. Drugs, and and every day somebody is trying to mix something together to get a better high, as it might be called, uh, on the street, or to get a better effect or desired outcome. And uh, this last category of unknown includes then all those potential substances that might be, at this particular moment, being concocted or uh, mixed up or cooked up, as they also might say, and uh, would then otherwise be something that would affect a person in, once more, some sort of measure of disorder, pathology, or uh, some maladaptive sort of manner or means or way. So these 10 classes are not fully distinct, which means that there can be overlap, Usually, if a person's going to use one drug, uh, and then they get to the point where it is either in mild, moderate, or severe sort of classification, or subcategorization, or classification, uh, they're probably going to use another, and oftentimes, they use them in combination, and with that, then, it creates difficulties separating or fully identifying what category, generally speaking, the substance might fall in? Much more so, uh, the person oftentimes is not a very reliable informant. So though you might ask them, what drugs are you using? They may or may not intend to mislead. They may or may not be able to remember their state of cognitive or intellectual functioning may be so impaired by their use of drugs they can't remember but it's very difficult oftentimes to get a good history so to know exactly when you're making a diagnosis what the person's been taking. However, according again to the DSM, all drugs that are taken in excess have in common this one or these basic effects or this basic effect. Direct activation of the brain's reward system and... Presumably, again, to understand a bit of the psychophysiology or the physiological psychology of human functioning, the reward system is that part of the brain that's tied to all of the primary drives. You need to do certain things. A person needs certain things accomplished that uh, is necessary for them to stay alive. When you talk about primary drives... There's are certain things like eating then, sleeping then, having enough uh, intake of fluids, water, liquids that are necessary for survival. If you don't, then the body will not survive. The primary reward is that all of those primary drives would then otherwise have some good feeling attached to it so that you would do it not only when you need it, when you're feeling bad or when there is a need, but you would then enjoy doing it. Why? Because it's necessary to stay alive. What substance misuse or where substance misuse comes in is a person has figured out some other substance and truly there's not much new under the sun, even in the category of all this drug use or development of new drugs to use to make us, again, feel good, primary reward system, but it plugs into a basic physiological need or at least a receptor site that's attached to a physiological need in the central nervous system, in the brain. When it goes to that place, it acts just like that normal neurotransmitter or the biochemistry that goes into the primary reward system in the brain and in the nervous system or combined. That would be sympathetic, parasympathetic, uh, nervous system, autonomic nervous system. But it is all designed to keep us alive. However, there is only so much of any particular thing that we need, one, pragmatically, we need to stay alive, and then second to that, there's only so much that we can do one thing to the exclusion, possibly, of even other things that are necessary to stay alive that won't in the end throw it all off, create a lot of problems physically as well as psychologically, And could end up in the end resulting in quite the opposite of what the primary drives are all about, the reward system is all about. The ultimate, I suppose, we could say, of punishments, and that would be death. There's a lot of things that go along the way. Hopefully, if there's some uh, safety, margin of safety, they used to call that some sort of a lethality, measure of lethality, or at least the uh, margin between what is uh, effective for to get the certain response that one desires, and then where the red line is. If you cross it, then the body is unable to function. But as you might imagine, the greater the distance between those two points, the safer the drug is. Some drugs, though, and certainly as the body would otherwise react to them over a period of time being in the system, this thing called tolerance, which we'll get into probably a little later on in more detail, the body can tolerate a lot of stuff, chemically-wise. But when you get to the point where your body is tolerating a substance, it is also then narrowing that margin between a dose that brings about a particular effect, therapeutic dose, and then what we call lethality, which is overdose. And most of the dangerous, or more dangerous, most dangerous substances that people could use, really the body does an incredible job tolerating. But that's what makes them then risky. Because as the line narrows, it takes almost as much to get the effect as it does to kill you. So that's where overdosing usually comes in. Now, you can make, and I think it's a sound Uh, case for, or it would be a, a factual sort of statement, that all drugs will eventually result in death if used or abused in severe fashion, simply because, again, the body can't tolerate them indefinitely. But again, the body has a great capacity to tolerate a lot of substances. And with that, then it kind of is codependent. That's another one of those terms that may or may not come up in today's discussion, but eventually will, probably along the way on the podcast. But it allows the person to do a lot of unhealthy things before it finally gets to the place of saying, we can't do it anymore. I know that that's a little bit of a uh, taking a a little bit of of an advantage. Uh, calling it we, or suggesting that somehow the body in some sort of way talks to itself. Uh, It doesn't, otherwise hopefully it would be screaming out, stop. But in some measured way, the body has to communicate, maybe not through language, as I just presented it, uh, but it does communicate in such a manner that says, um, this can't go on. Uh, it can't support itself, uh, and unfortunately, you die when you get to that point unless you get somebody to step in and and maybe administer some other substances or substance that counters that, or you get to a hospital where they can put you on life support and then do all those things that are necessary to do to try to keep you alive and your brain from going dead uh, for lack of oxygen when the brain When the body stops working, though the brain may still be able to function to a certain extent, you will not be very long. And if it has any capability of remaining functional over that period of time, when the rest of the body quits, it's a very short period of time. But sometimes people do get squads called out. They do make it to hospitals. They may be in some sort of a coma or something like that but fortunately they come out of it still alive and their brain mostly intact. That doesn't happen much. Not with certain of these drugs, and certainly though I did not get the statistic on overdose deaths, we all know that it's a particularly significant percentage when you look at it in relationship to, again, certain substances, and these substances, once more, would all be substances that the body could tolerate well. But all drugs that are taken in excess have in common direct activation of the brain reward system, which is involved in the reinforcement of behaviors and the production of memories. Again, brain, body, memories are important because that's all part of learning. Uh, Unfortunately, when you take a substance and you don't remember much about what it's done to you, it kind of has a way of disarming, dismantling, turning off, deactivating memories. You can't remember, and hence then, you probably also are not going to learn, which for most of us, that would be an important consideration as well. If we're abusing a substance, it has the risk of killing us or using a substance to the place of what used to be abuse and/or dependence, and it has the risk to kill us. It would be certainly very adaptive if we could learn from our mistake. Know better where the line is. Now, arguably, so even if you show someone where the line is, it does not mean that they will stop using. There is this thing called denial that always goes along with substance abuse, chemical dependency issues. The person doesn't want to. They do not want to face the situation. They do not accept the responsibility. They don't want to examine the consequences. They do not want to have memories. Hence, they may even take the drugs for that. More so, they are resistant not only to treatment... But if treatment includes learning, they don't want to learn. Maybe the brain has become so disabled, uh, so impaired, uh, so damaged from the substance use, they can't learn anymore. But once again, the body can tolerate a lot. unless it kill you during the early stages, when there are certainly not only one red flag, but several red flags that are being run up the flagpole, People don't want to learn. They just want to feel good, that reward system. These substances produce such an intense activation of the reward system that normal activities may, is how the DSM puts it, I'm going to say likely will be, normal activities will be neglected you won't do them. You take a certain substance, you may not eat. You take a certain drug, you may not sleep. You will not take care of yourself. You take a certain substance and you may wander into the streets and get run over by a car. You may not recognize that the sore that has come as a result of Uh, An injury isn't healing because your immunological system is so compromised or your body at some point through the use of, I'll use this as an example, certainly not all drug dependence or not drug, well, I guess it would be dependence and abuse. But in in our conversation today, I want to stick pretty much to the, the, the specifics of the classification system, the misuse of the substance, such as shooting up, using dirty needles, you get infection. And other diseases that go along with that, but you just don't care or you don't pay attention to them. And before you know it, your body is so riddled with infection, you become sepsis, septic, and you die from that. So, not only may be neglected, but depending on where you are on that continuum of mild, moderate to severe, those subclassifications. If you're in that moderate to severe range, even in the mild, you still may be ignoring some of the most obvious red flag signs, but certainly in the moderate to severe range, you don't care. And with that, you are going to neglect activities, normal activities. And and I think not only for survival, as I'm speaking of it now, but I think this also captures the idea, not only in a personal health sort of way but you probably aren't going to take care of social responsibilities as well. You're not going to show up for work. You're not going to keep your promises. You're not going to pay your bills. You're not going to remember important dates, times. You're not going to be able to operate your car properly, uh, and so on and so forth. You may or may not know, most of us may or may not know, the specific either state, local, federal penal codes, laws, uh, but certainly under the influence, even if you would know an obvious law, you still might be inclined not to do it or to break it. And many of the so-called substance use problems include a lot of contra-legal or illegal activities. Now again, I'm just saying most normal people are going to take care of themselves physically, recognize health problems, have some common sense about that, but also they're going to stay out of trouble. They're not going to get into fights with their neighbors. They're not going to engage in illegal activities. They're not going to end up being picked up by the police or the local law enforcement or federal law enforcement, and they're likely then not going to have either jail or prison time, hopefully. Does not mean that jail and prison time is always correlated or law offense, offenses of the uh, law offenders, offenders of the law, uh, law enforcement, are going to end up using substances, but it is strongly correlated, and in that there's probably a percentage that are directly correlated, positively so, to the use of a substance. Whether it is to get high, as in a primary reward, or a lot of people do it to make money. They get involved because it's an industry. It is a way to make money, and they don't pay taxes on it. It's illegal. It's under the table, as, again, on the street, it might be called. So, normal activities may be neglected. As well substances or substance related disorders according to the DSM are divided into two groups again I've sort of said this once more I've sort of said this but there's substance use disorders which we've talked about but then there is also there are also substance induced disorders the following conditions may be classified as a substance induced and we've talked about the substance use up to this point this would be the things, these things would again in correlative sort of fashion go along with substance use, misuse, intoxication, meaning you're out of it, your body is no longer functioning again normally, your brain and your nervous system, and all that goes into walking, talking. Just day-to-day sort of activities become so out of alignment with normal that you give the appearance of, because you are at that point physiologically, intoxicated. There is also withdrawal, which basically means you're going to come off of the substance, or at least as long as the substance is in your system, it has a particular effect when it starts to leave your system and everything you put in eventually comes out. That's just the way the body functions. Fortunately, thankfully, it is quite adaptive in that there are some things that enter into your system that are not good for you. Or if taken again in excess amounts, it can become toxic and the body needs to remove them. So what happens is the body does it through an excretory system, and that takes out through urine and feces. It takes out or removes the liver, kidneys. It takes out and removes all the things that would kill us, cause us to be sick, eventually could result in death. However, in terms of these substance-induced disorders, you're going to feel the effects of that leaving your body. You're going to feel the effects of withdrawal. And whatever a substance does in a psychoactive sort of way or a physiologically active sort of way, either to make you feel good or to bring whatever physiological things that go along with these primary reward system to feeling good, when it starts to exit your system you start to feel just the opposite. So whatever the drug effect is, the withdrawal effect is typically the opposite. There is also, according to the DSM, other substance medication-induced mental disorders, which could include psychotic disorders, psychoses, and though we may on word speak uh have a particular podcast that speaks directly to psychotic disorders it's not today but generally speaking psychotic disorders always include hallucinations as well as delusions hallucinations are through the sensorium the five senses something is registered that really isn't there the sensory system is activated fires off, so to speak, the central nervous system, takes it to the brain, and the brain, because it doesn't know any better than what the senses give it, input, construes it as something familiar, something that we've come to associate with these particular sensations. Even if it's not really happening, we think it's happening. A common delusion not with all drugs, but with certain categories of drugs, which, again, we'll get into either today or on another podcast. The specifics of each of the classification, the categories, can include this thing called paranoia, where you believe it's a delusion. It's uh, one of those things that goes with or is uh, essential to uh, the possibility of a diagnosis of psychosis, where you think somebody else is out to harm you, to hurt you, to in some form, manner, or fashion, possibly even kill you. Now with that, then we've got hallucinations, misrepresentations of actual data, facts that the senses collect, register in the brain, but the brain left to interpret it also then is at risk with psychoses, substance-induced psychoses, construing that as paranoia, a delusion, dangerous, and it may not be true, but the brain takes it as such. There would also be mood disorders that go along with substance use. Mood is just a general condition. Typically, we see it as uh, a long Pretty basically an up or down sort of measure. Elevated mood would be euphoria. A down or uh, a lowered mood would be depression or dysphoria. Somewhere in the middle, a clinical term we use is euthymic. It's normal. Yeah, maybe not entirely good but certainly not entirely bad. But let's say you like feeling good, which is again, as we've said already, associated with the primary reward system. Not necessarily only for physiology, although everything that happens in the body has a physiological basis, even psychological phenomenon, such as, I feel good today. That's mood. That's emotion. It's physiologically based, But let's say that you like feeling good, just like you do when your primary reward system is activated, and you discover this particular substance makes you feel good longer, maybe at your discretion, maybe doesn't even have to then be tied to the thing, the event, the occurrence, the choice, the behavior, that physiologically in a primary drive sort of way, Eating, sleeping, sex. Sex is a primary drive. It's not tied to that as directly any longer because you can take this particular substance and feel just as good without having to do any of those other things. Eat, sleep, have sex. It feels good. Sometimes you can't eat. Sometimes you can't sleep. Sometimes You otherwise can't either even enjoy probably what most uh, physiologists, most psychologists, counselors, uh, psychological counselors would say would be the best of all possible primary rewards, sex for the sake of procreation, advancing the species, reproduction. So there'd be as many, possibly. And that's the whole point with procreation. Really, it's not designed for us to necessarily control it, birth control, population control, uh, those type of measures, but it's designed to feel really, really good, believing that maybe there would have been other natural more natural sort of predators that would do all of those birth control, population control things for us. Maybe life would have been at some other time or in place, some other place, more risky. Hence, those things might then keep the numbers down. But when there's very few natural risks, procreation can really get out of control because it feels so good. But if you take a substance To achieve that end result, you disconnect it from a primary drive. There isn't anything stopping you. And that, again, is why it goes from mostly use, in a mild sort of category, subcategory, to use with severity, or as it used to be, formerly, abuse. I take it now and then it gets me into some trouble, to dependence, I take it all the time. Not only do I want it, but as we've talked about tolerance earlier, our body gets to the point where we need it. We become dependent physically on it as well as psychologically on it. Mood, then, is that emotional reaction that associates itself with all of that, happens collaterally, tied together in a cause-effect sort of way, correlates But some of the possible conditions, one of the most obvious, possibly easiest to see, would be what we call bipolar reaction. When you're on, you're up, mood-wise. When you're off the substance, you're down. Up would be euphoria. Down would be dysphoria, as we've described it earlier. There are other mood disorders, which we probably won't get into today, but at some time in the future on another podcast, we'll probably talk about uh, mood disorders, but those can also be manifest. There is then also, as with the dysphoria, substances, if you don't like the high so much or if you feel like you're high all the time and you need to bodily and that's something I probably should say or mention. The body has this thing called a homeostatic response, which is a set point that we're all born with. We presume that it's in our genes. There's it's genetically encoded. It's the optimal for our body. Now, ideally again, everybody's would be have would have or would be a perfectly correlated sort of thermostat or would have a perfectly correlated sort of thermostat where They would want to hang out or the body would be designed to hang out or to function around the mean or the average or the normal. Not too hungry, not too high of a metabolism, not too active or hyperactive, not too low, loss of appetite, not too lethargic, lack of sufficient energy. But some people do are born that way, do have some genetic predisposition. We have also, painfully so, discovered that there are certain substances that cross the what we call blood-brain barrier, which is really now getting back to not necessarily so much genetics as during that critical time of formation those first months of life when you're in your mother's womb, what she's doing, what her body is doing, what artificial as well as a normal, biological I should say, substance or chemicals that are in her body, they can get into the child's body. They can begin to affect not only normal development, but can render the child upon physical birth already addicted or dependent. If it's an alien substance, like something that the mom was taking, prescribed or non-prescribed, or even if the mother had a propensity herself toward being higher or lower, anxious or depressed, uh, excess energy, no energy, the baby can be influenced by those neurotransmitters. Why? Because the neurotransmitters plug into the nervous system that then goes along with the homeostatic response to keep the body functioning in concert with the brain, keep the body functioning at an adaptive or optimal sort of level, homeostasis, that sweet spot, the normal. But... Even if it's through natural sort of conditions, so to speak, that that happens through what's going on in the mother's body more naturally, not as a result of a substance or can't be pinpointed to a particular substance, some sort of use, misuse, some sort of substance-induced condition as we're talking about now, the baby can actually be born already not only predisposed but experiencing What we are now, kind of, or have been in this program, identifying as not only substance-induced symptoms, but uh, related substance use problems. The baby can come out an addict or addicted and then would go through withdrawal and all those other things that we will get into that goes along with diagnosing and treating substance use problems. And unfortunately, have had no real choice in it at all, altogether, and yet still has to be treated, uh, not necessarily with choices, because the baby really doesn't, again, have much choice, but certainly biochemically, somebody else makes decisions, the medical provider makes that decision, helps the baby go through or get off of that, so to speak, uh, withdraw from that sort of effect or that substance effect as it's affecting their body so not only can there be bipolar related disorders there can be depressive disorders anxiety disorders people can be obsessive compulsive now for the the point that we're at in our discussion i'm not going to go into much detail with that just yet but i will in future podcasts but by its very nature, substance abuse, chemical dependency, is an obsessive-compulsive sort of disorder. There is always preoccupation, obsession with do I have the drug? How am I feeling? Do I need the drug? Can I get the drug? Can I get the substance? Will I get the substance? If I don't get the substance, what am I going to feel like? Etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. We're obsessed. Those individuals would be obsessed, not we are, but they would be, those that are in that category, obsessed with getting that. There would also then be the compulsive, which is doing all the things that you would maybe not want to do, but you feel compelled. There's a compulsion to do. I've got to get it. I've got to get it. I've got to do this. I've got to get it. If I don't do this, I'm not going to get it. And if I don't get it, then again, I'm going to end up feeling awful. The withdrawal is going to make me feel awful. It's going to be as would be then not tied to rewards, although it is the reward system, but it's going to feel like an awful, horrible, terrible punishment. I want to avoid that. So I'm going to do whatever I have to do which, as I just described it, kind of captures, too, the circular nature of all that. Obsessions drive compulsions. Compulsions, as within trying to fulfill them, drives one to obsess. And with that, every time that cycles, recycles, it becomes intensified until the person gets the substance. Uh, Just interestingly, uh, I've also found that just telling an addict, somebody who is severe use disorder, substance use disorder, that you have access to a substance or that you have access to something that's going to replace that substance, medication assist, that's going to help them in some sort of way, legal and prescribed, already they start to feel better. There's an anticipatory response that goes along with that that helps them to feel better. So, obsession compulsion is there. There can be, obviously, sleep problems because you're, again, messing with sleep as with the primary drive, the notion of primary drive. We've talked about the primary drive of sex or repercussion, production, Uh, procreation, reproduction, procreation. We've talked about uh, certainly psychotic. We're going to talk about a little more specifically with this notion of a delirium, which it lists, lists here, which really we have mentioned that the brain stops working. And then there is also this thing called neurocognitive disorders, Now, neurocognitive disorder kind of captures some of those same things that we were mentioning with the brain or the brain's uh, stopping working, but at the same time, it's specific to the neurological function of the brain. It'd be much similar then to someone who had a stroke, and as a result of the stroke, the brain was no longer able to function or work. Uh, because of damage to the the neurons themselves, the axons or the dendrites, as they say, or axons and dendrites on the nerve cell, neurotransmitters, the synapse, etc., etc. Then there's also the likelihood that as you would use a substance over a particular period of time, moving from one of more mild to moderate to severe subcategorization of the disorder, uh, the use disorder, then you're going to probably have greater risk that these particular, some subjects, not all, but some of the subjects are going to result in possible damage to the brain. Uh, Again, as with a stroke, there's atrophy, there would be otherwise actual brain damage. We know that, for instance, alcohol as a substance creates brain damage. Now, of course, not everybody is going to have that, and the earlier on in that whole process progression from uh, initial use all the way through to the point where you uh, are having more severe uh, problems, whether it be from the the actual effects of the substance or substance-induced sort of medical or psychological conditions, by the time it gets there, Most people will have had plenty of opportunities to be aware and hopefully get the help that they need. And should there be any sort of true merit to this idea that uh, we're talking about a disease process or disorder uh, in a disease sort of terms, physiological sort of terms, if it had to be predicated upon this notion that, that genuinely speaking, all Physiology underlies all functioning, and that includes psychological functioning. And with that, that, that there is not only the, the reality that from either a genetic standpoint or maybe even as we've mentioned earlier in the podcast about being in utero, uh, even as you're in your mother's womb, certain biochemical effects take place so that upon your birth you may actually physiologically uh, either have a disease, so either from genetics or from, again, that exposure. The idea, though, is that disease is always progressive. It it always has an onset and a course. And in that same sort of way, substance uh, use disorders have that same dimension of an onset and then a progressive, which means worsening course with associated symptoms that are worsening. Now, whether or not it's entirely physiologically based in the sense that no one has a choice or nobody really would have a choice, that's a a different question, and it's a different issue. Uh, I know that many times individuals are told to just simply choose to not use a particular substance as an answer. Uh, The reason even for My bringing all of this information from the American Psychiatric Association, from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, discussing it, bringing it to you today on the podcast, is so that you would then be informed, should there be then this opportunity for you to exercise a choice, as in don't do it, that's unfortunately what a lot of people will say, as the ultimate in strategies when it comes to treatment, just don't do it. And even as much, that may be a psychological sort of function, choice. The better choice is always on the front end, to know, to have information, to be aware. Not that everyone who uses a substance is going to have this predisposition, either genetically or in some ways uh, through some physiological association, correlation, that happens with the mom. It's not genetic, but it you know it's it's affecting. It crosses what again we call the blood brain barrier. Uh, it it can have that kind of impact. But at that juncture, you can't say, well, just choose not to. Especially if it's genetic, because obviously there is a predisposition. To be informed assists in making good decisions before you have to arrive at that point of finding out. And it's probably also worth saying that not everybody who uses a substance necessarily is going to end up with a substance use disorder. There's plenty of occasions where individuals do things that unfortunately uh, through a situation, circumstance, just genuinely so misfortune, unfortunate misfortune, Their use of a substance gets associated with something that really had nothing to do with it, the substance that is, except having used a substance adds extra dimension to the problem. For instance, going to a party and having a drink or several drinks is not illegal. Operating a motor vehicle with a blood alcohol content above a certain percentage is illegal. But going from that party to your house in an automobile where you believe that you're below that level may or may not end up being a problem, even if it were to be that you drank a little more, your BAC, blood alcohol content, was high enough to reach that threshold. What might matter more than whether or not there's an adverse or really terrible consequence such as driving under the influence, getting in an accident, harming yourself, harming somebody else, causing property damage, might simply be you didn't see the particular stop sign, you ran it, you were pulled over because you also just happened at that very moment to have a situation that included a police officer on patrol who saw you do that. Maybe they just saw that your taillight was genuinely burnt out Maybe they were profiling. I don't know. I hear that so much. Uh, And probably there's some to some extent some truth. If you're three in the morning and you're driving home, they're going to maybe pull you over. Probable cause. They may say, well, you crossed the line. You did this. They did that. But the idea is it still may not be substance-induced or substance-use-related. It may simply be that it was a a bad set of circumstances that came together, but you were then given a field sobriety test. It was determined through a breathalyzer you had a BAC higher than the legal limit, and you, unfortunately, are going to go or did go to jail. In the oldest sort of classification system of the DSM, we'd have called that abuse if it got you in trouble it call it would be necessary cause you trouble it would be necessary to identify that as abuse but abuse is different from chemical dependence in that you could stop it if you weren't chemically dependent but if you couldn't stop it and there was a series of events even if they kind of had some of that random, spontaneous sort of nature to them, spontaneous in the sense that it was situation-specific, we'd still look at you, that person being evaluated, and say, well, this isn't the first time. Why didn't you stop? Why did you repeat it if you knew it could cause problems? And generally speaking, that would be through the repetition, the inability to stop, you could be Pretty assured, confirmed, would be assured diagnostically that that was a dependency problem or issue. Likewise, I should probably say this too uh, not everyone who drinks is again going to have a problem, but you won't know until you have a problem. And that problem, again, could be sufficient enough to have some painful, sort of consequence associated with it, may not clinically be use severe, substance use severe, or what we used to call dependence, but still enough to have an impact. But should you happen to be that person who otherwise then does have this genetic predisposition, this personality dimension. That other that would then go uh, would go along with or would contribute to these type of difficulties we're discussing today on the podcast. Then you won't know until you do it. Now, common sense might say, then, if you don't need to do it, don't do it. It's sort of hard at times to figure out what's necessary and versus what's maybe just you want to do versus what you need to do. People enjoy substances. And again, from the statistics, there's a lot of folks out there who are not only substance use disordered, but probably who aren't. That would then just use a substance and not have any problem whatsoever with it, even if it were an illicit, illegal substance. But until you do that... You will not know for sure if you may be the one person that might have that problem or one of all these many, when you look at it in a general population sort of way, that is going to have a problem. The best choice, of course, again, is before you get into a problem. The best treatment is primary, not secondary or tertiary care, primary. Before a problem happens, all of this information that I'm sharing with you is in hopes that as you may or may not have, you would know, have some awareness. As you may or may not choose to use a substance, illicit or not, you would know what are your possibilities. Not necessarily probability because no one knows until you have that genetic mapping done and we don't have that yet. Unless you've taken some sort of test that shows, genetic test that shows you're predisposed, we do not know that yet. And even then, you still may have had some problems, again, in utero, which could begin to affect your physiological development. It's intense it? while you're in those first few, again, few months of, of uh, a life, but the first few years are equally intense. And so there may be a complication. Maybe you don't get treatment once you're born. Maybe you continue then to use or misuse substances. It's going to impact your body's physiological, biological development. It's going to contribute to a dependency issue. Again, everything begins physiologically with psychological extension. But getting back to that notion of not only good diagnosis, which is once more what this is all about. We want to know. We want to know what's physically going on. We also want to know what's psychologically going on. We want to understand if there's a physiological risk or predisposition or if it's a disease model in that sense versus the fact that maybe it's just impaired your ability to give good consideration, to be empirical about making a good choice or decision about using or not using. Maybe you need some assistance from someone else who's objective, who can look at your circumstance and help you sort that out. But if we don't make a thorough and complete and good diagnosis, we run the risk then of saying, just quit. And unfortunately, the person can't. But if we don't then include, well, maybe then, reminder, it could be physiological, we might want to look at that, The person says, well, you're just not trying hard enough. They say that to themselves. I should just be able to go cold turkey. Well, maybe if it's early enough on, even if you have a predisposition, but also if you don't have any sort of genetics involved, if it's not a disease for you, maybe you're one of those individuals that doesn't have that problem, then yes, stop. Stop before you get in trouble. But if you've already gotten into trouble and you can't stop, the likelihood cold turkey will work for you or somebody looking at you and saying, just stop, where's your common sense, use your brain, look at the results, the outcomes, that's most likely not going to be effective. And you need some additional help. You need some additional assistance. That, again, is why we're spending so much time or have spent so much time in this first podcast in setting all this up so that as we then in subsequent broadcasts, podcasts, we discuss more the specific categories. Again, there's 10 categories of substances that cause problems, difficulties, use, that get into this rewards system that we've discussed earlier today, you will be able to apply all of this information, not only in terms of identifying if that substance is a problem, maybe not for you, maybe even for somebody you know and love, because as much as there's this many people that have these problems, for every person that has the problem, there is at least one other, most likely exponentially so, many others that are having problems associated with this one person whom they love having this particular problem. So this will arm you, this information will assist you in finding answers when you need them. But as much as we would then a subsequent podcast take a look at all these particular categories, you'll also begin to see how all of this really primary sort of theoretical basis pragmatic basis, way of looking at, perspective, looking at substance use, misuse, substance disorder, abuse and dependency sort of issues on substances, how that impacts not only the diagnosis, but once again, the way that we treat it. So give that some thought. I'd like to, again, thank our listeners today, those of you who are listening to the podcast today, for joining us on Word. With Dr. David Clay. And, of course, I'd like to invite you back to join us again so that you'll get more data, more information again, once more, be able to apply this as the situations and circumstances in your life may necessitate. And, of course, the implications are tremendous as much as, again, once more, individuals who have substance use problems do not do this in a vacuum and it affects us not only in terms of, of how our life, the quality of our life would be, but also how we are contributing to, uh, in many ways, our culture around us, uh, our answers to those problems and difficulties. As I spoke with the uh, choice, uh, this, the, uh, the advice to just quit, there's a lot of misconceptions out there and individuals who are operating off of misinformation uh, when it comes to some of these substances, and and in particular, a few of these that are very, very popular, uh, but have really tremendous, again, implications. So once more, I want to thank you for joining us on Word, where we're going to take all of this type of information, the psychological, the counseling-related, the behavioral health-related, those things that, that uh, address or uh, directly impact our own personal development, Uh, the family, uh, just every aspect of our life. We're going to take that information and empower you to use it in a constructive way. So once more, this is Dr. David Clay on Word.